Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. All right, let's open our Bibles today to James chapter 2. It's located on page 1173 if you need a pew Bible. James chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 8 through 13 today. Please rise to receive God's holy word spoken to you. Remember that this is, this is coming on the tail of, of James talking about favoritism. Now we are not to show favoritism. Starting at verse, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law as found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a word of the Lord spoken to you for your training and instruction in righteousness. Please have a seat. Um, quick poll before we begin today. Who likes the Beatles? Who would consider themselves a Beatles fan? All right, you have my permission to tune out for the next minute or so because I'm going to be a little critical of a Beatles song. Um, you've been warned. So in 1967, John Lennon wrote a song that became a hit over the, the so-called Summer of Love. And the song was, of course, All You Need Is Love. And now that's going through your head. You're not going to hear the rest of the sermon. You're just going to hear, da-da-da-da-da, all you need is love. Right? And when interviewed about this song, the Beatles manager said, the nice thing about this song is it cannot be, it cannot be misinterpreted. It is a clear message that says, love is everything. And you can see the appeal to this notion, can't you? If everybody would love, the world would be a better place. The problem is that this simplistic idea that all you need is love has no guiding force behind it. No instructive guidelines, no purpose. It's just a sentiment put out there for you. So it leaves a lot of questions in its wake. What constitutes love? Is love an action? Is love a feeling? Is it something else? What is a loving gesture? What is a loving relationship? What is not? Who gets to make that call? As brilliant as the Beatles were, I don't think we need to leave it up to them. 
Today, you can drive up and down. You could drive up and down these streets right next to the church, all throughout our community, and I guarantee you, you will see on almost every block two or three signs that say, love is love. We see that all over the place. And it's this saying that's going through uh, culture right now that says all loving relationships are equally valid because it's love and love is good. And therefore, don't judge it, don't, don't have anything bad to say about it. Well, this concept of all you need is love instantly breaks down logically when that's all you have to say about it. I mean, can we agree right now that some really wicked and immoral things have been done in the name of love? People say, I love you, know, I love you but then they do horrible things. Love without direction is love without purpose. It is not actually love in the end. And I agree, we need love. I don't, I'm not standing up here saying we need to throw love out. I'm saying we need to amend this song. Not all we need is love. All we need, I would say, is God's love. Because with this one change, and I know I've just broken a copyright law. It's okay. With this one change, we've now provided it with a source, with a purpose, and with a direction. We now have a source and purpose and direction behind love. You see, God didn't just come out to us and say, hey guys, all you need is love, and then walk away. He knew we needed more than that. He knew we would be lost. He knew that we would need to be told specifically how to love. Somebody tells me, build a porch, and doesn't provide me with any instructions, the sentiment is there, they will not get the end result. I have no idea how to build a porch unless you give me very specific step-by-step directions and also Bill and Hugh to come over and actually do the work (laughs) for me. I need instructions. We need instructions about love. We need to be told exactly what constitutes edifying, positive love in our life and what things we thought were love we're actually sinful. We need somebody to tell us very clearly and make that distinction. And so, God, as part of His covenant, came down on Mount Sinai. And He handed Moses and the people ten specific ways they were to show love. Very clear. This was their instructional guidelines. The Ten Commandments. The law of God says this in essence. How we are to love God and love others through things that we do and things that we refrain from doing. It's a guide to love. That is what the Ten Commandments are. Well, as James here continues in his second chapter on this subject of favoritism, he appeals to God's law. He appeals to the Ten Commandments here as the sole guiding principle of how we should love in our lives. James quotes Leviticus. All things always come back to Leviticus. He quotes Leviticus in verse 8 when he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. It's the same royal law that Jesus told His disciples to follow. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same royal law that Jesus practiced. And look at how He practiced it without showing a shred of favoritism. In his life, day in and day out, he would minister to the beggar, but he would also minister to the Pharisee. He would dine with the rich, but he would also break bread with the poor. He would raise the Roman centurion's 
daughter back to life, but he also raised his best friend uh, Lazarus back to life. He would die on the cross for the thief as well as his own mother. He showed no favoritism. For Jesus, the question was never, will helping this one person benefit me? Well, there, is there something I will get out of this? Is there something for me? What do I stand to gain from loving them? That was never a question that went through Jesus' mind. He loved equally and he acted upon that love because it pleased the Father for Him to do so. And this is why we need God's love because I guarantee you, without God's love, we have no capacity to refrain from making these personal judgment calls in our life over who we think is worthy of love and who we don't. And that brings us right back to favoritism. We will make more of a selfish effort to help people who help us in return. Well, you know who absolutely cannot help us here at Knox Church? Absolutely can't. The people of Sheridan Parkside can't help us. The inner city families that Urban Christian Ministries reaches out to and ministers will not be able to help us here at church. They will not come into our doors. They will not contribute to our attendance. They will not contribute to our finances. They will not make us more popular or better in the eyes of the world. So why are we pouring money and time and effort into ministering to these people? Shouldn't we, I mean, if you logically look at it, shouldn't we only do things that benefit Knox Church as a whole, that benefit us? Well, no. James says no. Because God's law says no. You love your neighbor, whether or not you get anything out of it. It's not the question. That is not our purpose. That is not our focus as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not discern, we do not discriminate against people based on what we think benefits us. It's about obeying the king. It's about growing the kingdom, whether it's here or elsewhere. Loving others in God's name, according to God's law, James says, is right. Another way to look at it is, it's never wasted. It's never wasted if you love somebody in God's name, whether or not you get anything out of it. Well, James goes on in the next three verses to say that those who do discriminate, or he uses some other examples here, he says those of you who show favoritism or commit adultery or commit murder or break any one of God's moral laws are now guilty of breaking all of them. And chances are we have broken more than a single point of God's law. I saw a pastor make The argument when he was studying through James, he said, if you commit the sin of favoritism, you have, in effect, broken each one of the Ten Commandments. And he went on to defend it. It was actually pretty fascinating. He said, you know, like you lied to your neighbor. You envied somebody's wealth over your own. You have been unfaithful to Jesus, your bridegroom. You set up popularity as an idol. You see, sin just cascades over and over. And so we can't just isolate our sin and say we just sinned in one place because held up to the moral law of God, we've sinned all over the place. And the point that James is making here, it's a really profound one. And I want you to absorb what he's saying. He's saying that God's law is all or nothing. Let me say that again. God's law is all or nothing. 
either keep all the law or you break all the law. There is nothing in between. If you have broken one point of the law, you have broken all of it. There's no cosmic scales, as we like to think of them, that weigh your good deeds against your bad in the large scheme of things. God's law has such a unity to it. It says God has given all of it to us. He doesn't give us half of it. He says, well, I've given you ten things. Keep at least half of them. He says you've got to keep all of it. It's got to function fully together in order to do the right thing. If you break one of it, the whole machine disintegrates. It's like as if you had an otherwise healthy body, but your liver was failing. Your brain works great. Your lungs are filling up with oxygen. Your heart's pumping strong. Your stomach's digesting the food. But you will die anyways. Why? Because this one point breaking down in your body, breaking down, breaks the whole system. You need all of it working together. And that's how it is with God's law. You need the whole system functioning. Or otherwise, it breaks and death follows. That's why it was such bad news to the Old Testament believers when, they were, when God came to them and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Remember, the whole Bible is about the covenant between God and us. And God said, I will make you my people. I will be your God. I will bless you. I will sustain you. I will save you. But your responsibility in the covenant is to uphold my law perfectly. And the people initially were eager, and of course we'll read about that in Exodus when we get there, that when they received the Ten Commandments that very day, they broke it. And they kept breaking it. And they kept breaking it. And as many times as they were reminded of the law of the covenant, they broke it again and again. That's why this was bad news. Because they failed to uphold the covenant. And they brought upon the curse of sin and death at them. Time and again, the believers in the Old Testament fell short of the glory of God and they were in danger of having the book thrown at them. You know what that saying comes from, by the way? Having the book thrown at you? I did a little research. I got paid. This was on church time. I did a little research on where this came from. It comes from the early 1900s when some court cases were handling a crime that was so egregious, so severe, that the public and the prosecutor would go to the judge and urge the judge when he pronounced the person guilty. He said, we want you to open up the book and find the gravest possible punishment and throw that punishment at that person. Throw the book at them. Well, just as Paul does in Romans, James cuts through this flimsy human argument that says, where we go up and we say, well, we should be judged based on our own merits, based on our own works. That's how I want to be judged. I think I'll hold up just fine if that's the case. And James here points to the law of God and says, you have broken all of that. Do you really want to go in front of the judge in heaven and say, judge me based on my merits when you have broken everything? Because then the book really will be thrown at you. The gravest possible punishment. If we call Jesus Lord, then He is Lord over every part of our life. Including what we say and what we do. This is not an empty word that we use when we say Lord Jesus. We're saying we have now stepped away 
from what I think is right, what I want to do my own thing, well, I'm going to judge what's right and wrong. I'm making him Lord over those decisions. If you call Jesus Lord, make him Lord. You forgo doing what you think is right. Start following his law instead. Keep his commandments. Find out what it is to love through that. Well, I remember, and maybe you do too, many days in high school, college, even seminary, when I would sit down for a test. And most of the times, I think I'm a pretty good test taker. But every once in a while, I would get a test. And within reading two questions, I would have that sinking feeling in my stomach. I was not prepared. If you ever had that feeling, cast, cast your mind back. You know instantly, I have not studied the right things. I have no idea. And then you start frantically skimming the rest of that test. And you know, there's just no way. No way you are getting out of this room without bombing. And at that time, whenever that would happen to me, and I won't tell you how many times that happened, but when that would happen to me, I, let me tell you, I became the most fervent prayer warrior you have ever, ever witnessed in your life. I mean, prayer poured out of me so naturally. And the prayer was always this. Dear Lord, please, 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 please let the teacher grade on a curve. Please. Because I knew it was the only real chance I had. That if I was going to have a really bad test, I was crossing my fingers, I was rubbing my lucky rabbit's foot, I was praying to God that everybody else in the classroom was going to bomb too. That way, the teacher would have to look at that and say, well, maybe it was too hard of a test, and I'll grade on a curve. And if you've never had that happen, that means your, your grade gets lifted up with everybody else. So my F maybe gets lifted up to a C. Well, I think about this grading on a curve a lot because I think a whole lot of people in our world, they vaguely believe in God, they vaguely believe in God's justice, believe that when they go to heaven, that this is the strategy that they're going to employ when they get in front of the judgment seat of God. That they're going to appeal not to their own works, if that, that falls apart, they're going to wave around say, God, look at the rest of humanity. Grade us on a curve. Grade us on a curve. That's not how it works. James disabuses us of this. He says it does not work that way. For those in their sin on the day of judgment, that will be a terrible day indeed. There will be no defense. Nobody will speak on their behalf. Jesus said in Matthew 12 that we will be judged for all of the words we speak. Paul said in Romans and 2 Corinthians that we will also be judged on all of the actions, all of the deeds that we have done. So let me ask you, how confident are you in all of the words and all of the actions of your life that you are pure enough to enter heaven? Especially when you consider, as James just said, and I'll remind you again, that even breaking one point of the law is breaking all of it. Are you really going to stake your eternity on hoping that God grades on a curve? I'm not. I pray you're not either. But this leaves us with a problem, doesn't it? Because James has just driven us into a very dark spot in his epistle. He's driven us to this unbearable conclusion that we are guilty. 
we are guilty of breaking the full law of God. It is crashing down on our heads this very moment. And nothing you can say, nothing you can do, there is no defense that can alleviate that. And that is when the Gospel peeks right in to the book of James. It's not big. It's not momentous. But it is like a ray of brilliant sunshine that goes right through the clouds Right there at the end of verse 13, if your Bibles are still open, you see this statement, four words, but these four words make all the difference in your life, where James writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. Whose mercy is this? It's not ours. I can tell you that because we, he just said, we've been guilty of breaking all of the law. We're, we're not capable of the mercy that can really triumph over judgment. I mean, this mercy, as you just said, is God's. It's His judgment, but it's His mercy as well. James doesn't say the day of judgment won't happen. He says it will. But when it does happen, there will be those who are shown mercy instead of having the book thrown at them. Follow-up question then, Pastor Justin. Who gets this amazing, life-saving mercy? Who gets it? Simply, those who ask for it. Those who throw themselves right now at the foot of the judge because you can't wait for then. You can't wait for to come to the day of judgment. It will be too late to make up your mind by then. But if you throw yourself at the foot of the judge right now, you confess your crimes. You study God's law. You realize you have failed in all respects to uphold it and perfectly live according to it. You acknowledge your guilt and then you plead special dispensation. Those are the people. In those cases, James says, the court's mercy will triumph over judgment. Your crimes will not be held against you, but neither will they be dismissed. The judge does not have that ability. Instead, your crimes and your punishment will be transferred from you to one who is innocent, worthy, and willing to take them in your stead. That's the Gospel. Once we read... Re- Sorry, once we ask for and we receive the merciful gospel of Jesus, this passage that we just read in James can then be reversed. You can re- read it in reverse order and you can see how there's a wonderful effect. Instead of it driving us to despair, suddenly it's cascading. This gospel and grace and mercy is cascading out to wonderful effect. We receive the mercy that triumphs over judgment. We are freed then it says this law frees us. We are freed to show the same mercy to others. Now we're upholding the full law of God. We're no longer guilty of breaking it. We're upholding it because in God's eyes, we haven't broken it. We now want to start following the law, want to follow our God. And finally, we are now able to fully love our neighbors as ourselves in a way that we weren't able to do before we had the grace of Jesus in our lives. The law we follow shows us how to love. Let's love this week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, thank you for this tremendous gift, the gift of your law, and how it has gone from being a millstone around our necks dragging us down with our guilt. The Lord being the law of freedom 
has freed us to love, to live a life that is full of purpose, full of meaning, a life that pleases you, a life that will echo throughout all eternity. Because, Lord, you say what we do for you here matters forever. And so I pray this week, Lord, that we will love, not love those who just help us, love those that benefit us, but, Lord, we will just simply love and love according to your law. Love in a way that honors you. Love in a way that builds us up and makes us self-sacrificial. Just the way that your son sacrificed himself to us because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be found guilty, but will have eternal life. In your name, amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 10.30 a.m., either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash knoxepc. Past sermons can be found at knoxepc.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.